Hi, I'm Tony Mala, and welcome to the ASA Podcast, a program for automotive professionals that helps keep you ahead of what's now, what's new, and what's next in the business of automotive service and collision repair. This podcast is brought to you by the Automotive Service Association, dedicated to driving your success. And we'll be sharing information, insight, and inspiration that will not just help you make a living, it will help you make a difference. I'm talking to Richard Hawkins from the AC Tech Team at 1-800-RADIATOR-NAC at the MAX Training Event and Trade Show here in Nashville, Tennessee. This is the 40th anniversary of the Mobile Air Conditioning Society, and it has been a fabulous show. I'm spending some time talking to the instructors to share their wisdom that they're imparting to the crowd here. Richard, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for inviting me. It's indeed an honor to be here. You're one of the trainers here, and you were talking about compressors today, I believe, in your class, weren't you? That's right. Our class was focused on compressor design and differences in compressor behavior and how that applies to diagnostics. Hmm, interesting. Okay, I want to get into more detail on that, but let's talk a little bit about 1-800-RADIATOR and AC. Obviously, they've been a fixture here at the MAX convention for quite some time. What exactly does the company do? Well, as the names would suggest, the core product lines are radiators and, uh, and air conditioner, 1-800-RADIATOR and AC. It actually started out as 1-800-RADIATOR, and the name was changed to 1-800-RADIATOR and AC about 2010, somewhere along in there. Mm-hmm. Originally, they sold just radiators, then they got into condensers, then added air conditioning. And since that time, some other product lines have been added, such as fuel pumps, uh, some lighting, and most recently, uh, exhaust systems. And you're one of their instructors, obviously. What's your function with the company? My function with the company is exclusively with regard to air conditioning, tech support and air conditioning, and of course, uh, you know, doing some training such as this class at the MAX convention here. Hmm. So if I have a problem with one of the products and I call tech support, will I get you? Well, what you would actually have to do is you would have to call the uh, the local franchise, wherever you might be in the uh, United States, Canada, or Puerto Rico, you would call 1-800-RADIATOR on your telephone, and the way the telephone system set up, that call would go into the closest location. They would get in touch with our tech team by creating a ticket, and we would respond to the ticket and give you a call. What's your typical response time? Well, this time of year, it's extremely fast because, you know, this is an air conditioning season. When the spring and summer rolls around, we, we hope to get a call out in at least an hour or less. Still great response time. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the training. One of the things that I wanted to do uh, while I am at the show is to share some of the information with those who couldn't make it from some of the instructors. Now, we don't have time to go through your entire presentation. I get it. Right. But can you give us kind of a highlight the compressor topic that you were discussing? It seemed to indicate there was a bunch of different issues regarding compressors across vehicle model lines. Can you elaborate on that? Right. When we get a trouble ticket come across to call a customer, we get some information such as the vehicle application, a little bit of information about what's going on. So for us to prepare to make the call, we need to get some information on that specific system. We'll, we'll go to our information provider and, you know, we'll look up refrigerant capacity, oil capacity. We'll determine what type system it is, whether it's an orifice tube system or whether it's an expansion valve system, whether it's pressure control, temperature control, and also what type of compressor it is, whether it's a piston compressor, a scroll compressor, a rotary vane compressor, and if it's a fixed output compressor or a variable output compressor. And the thing that we find in a lot of cases uh, when we're talking to people trying to help them diagnose these problems, they aren't aware of the differences in behavior 
of these compressors, and in some cases, they're not even aware that variable displacement compressors exist. They think that even though variable displacement compressors have been out, or variable output and variable displacement compressors have been out since about 1985, that everything is fixed displacement, and they behave quite differently, and not understanding that and knowing how to apply that information sometimes can easily result in an incorrect diagnosis and replacing a compressor that doesn't really need to be replaced. What are the differences between fixed versus variable output, et cetera, that would affect a diagnostic process? With a fixed displacement compressor, it's either on or off. It runs at a full displacement, and you have a cycle and switch which will either turn it on and off. With a variable displacement compressor, that compressor can vary from a low of 2% of displacement up to 100% and all points in between. For that reason, you can get pressure readings which are significantly different. For example, If you had just a conventional fixed displacement compressor on an orifice tube system and you had, let's say, a 90-degree day, your high side pressure typically, you could expect it to be somewhere in the neighborhood of probably about 180 to maybe about, oh, 250 or so, depending upon some other variables such as humidity, heat load, blower speed, setting whether it's recirculate or outside air, that sort of thing. With a variable output or variable displacement compressor under those same conditions, you might see a high side pressure only running at maybe 110 to maybe 140. We had a video that we showed yesterday. We started off with it in a low heat load condition, and it was running about 110 PSI. It only got up to 165 under the highest of heat loads. So it's easy for somebody to do an incorrect diagnosis because they'll have maybe a pressure, high side pressure that's extremely low. And a system may not be cooling good because of something like a blend oil problem, which is allowing the extra heat to, to get into the, uh, the air coming out of the vents. And they'll look at it and like say, oh, I got only 110 pounds on the high side. I should have 180. I better replace the compressor. And, you know, what they need to understand is that they need to focus more on what the low side pressure is. If a low side pressure is where it's about where it's supposed to be, then most of the time you don't have a problem with a compressor. There's other things that enter into it as well. A lot of the diagnostic information that you see now, and it isn't a lot of it really available, but when you see troubleshooting charts, trouble trees, and that sort of thing nowadays, even though we're way into the uh, introduction of variable displacement compressors, with the the, uh, variable displacement compressor having been uh, introduced in 1985, most of that information is derived from pressure readings and sets that are experienced with fixed displacement compressors. So, you know, they don't factor that information in there. There's some other things that you run into. One common test that sometimes you'll run into is uh, somebody will take a compressor and they'll put their thumb over the suction or the discharge port. They'll spin it over. And if they don't feel it build pressure or create suction, they can dim the compressor. Well, a fixed displacement compressor is the only type of compressor that you'll consistently get suction or pressure out of because of the way that the variable displacement and variable output compressors are constructed, you don't typically get any pressure. So it's easy somebody to condemn a compressor because they're not getting any suction or pressure. You know, we also teach uh, some other things about the difference in a way that a, a uh, electronically controlled variable output compressor behaves versus a pressure control variable output compressor. You can have a situation where you have a pressure control variable displacement compressor like an old GM V7 or V5 compressor that came out in the 80s. You can have something as simple as a low charge occur because of the way that compressor is designed. It, it, it will throttle the uh, 
compressor output back when the low side pressure gets to about 28 to 32 psi. High side pressure, instead of being 160 or so, might only be 110, and it doesn't cool because of a lack of refrigerant in the evaporator. And a lot of times somebody will diagnose that as a, uh, a bad compressor because of the low high side pressure. If you have that same scenario with a low charge or something like a uh, expansion valve, which is restricted, with a electronically controlled variable displacement compressor, that one will act like a fixed displacement compressor. It'll go ahead and go to full displacement, and it might pull the low side down into a vacuum because it's controlled differently. Instead of being controlled by pressure, it's controlled by temperature. We have a uh, evaporator temperature sensor, which is looking at the temperature of the evaporator, sending that information to the computer. The computer sees that the evaporator temperatures warm so it, it's going to give it maximum displacement. So it's important to understand the difference in behavior between a pressure control variable displacement compressor and a electronically controlled variable displacement compressor and that was something that we focused on yesterday. We actually had a uh, what we call a diagnostics discussion question. It's very much like the ASE uh, test questions that we went over and that actually had a scenario on there of a low charge or a restricted expansion valve with a pressure control variable displacement compressor. How often are compressors misdiagnosed? Quite often. You know, this is the middle of February, and we haven't been particularly busy, obviously, with it being January and February, but I can just think right off the top of my head of probably about maybe four or five conversations that I've had with some technicians in 2020 where a compressor was replaced unnecessarily. I don't have any hard, real hard data on it, but, but I've been coming to the Max Convention for years and years, and I've seen some presentation from some various compressor manufacturers and rebuilders and all, and when they do teardowns and, and all of warranties, uh, it's not uncommon for them to have 10% of what they call NTF, no trouble found compressors. Yeah, so it's, uh, it happens quite frequently. If you understand about compressor behavior, it, it helps eliminate some of that. And that was the focus of our class that we did here at the MAX training and trade show and training event. The various manufacturers, do they tend to favor one type over another? I mean, is it more typical to find a variable displacement compressor on one mark versus another mark? There are a lot of compressor manufacturers out there, and some of them produce all of the above. Denso is one. Denso has a very wide variety of compressors. Sandon, they have a, a lot of different compressors that they make. And then you get into to some manufacturers where they might only offer you know, one type of compressor. For example, York compressors are fixed displacement compressors. Not a whole lot of those around anymore, but we still, you know, do sell some of those. Yorks were very common back in the 60s and 70s on Fords and Chryslers. GM had their, their A6 compressor that they initially used, and then about 1977, 78, they came out with the first lightweight compressor, which was the, uh, the R4 compressor. Again, is a variable displacement commonly used, or fixed displacement, are they more commonly used on domestic vehicles or import vehicles, or is it just a, kind of a mixed bag no matter what? It's a mixed bag. It's probably been, I think about the year 2000 was the last year that GM used a fixed displacement compressor on a car. They used, they've used them on light trucks and all, but as far as their, their cars, everything has used variable uh, of, of some shape, form, or fashion. Is that statement true commonly for um, a lot of modern vehicles? Are they tend to be moving towards variable displacement? They are moving more and more towards it. There's still quite a few fixed uh, output compressors that manufacturers are using, but with a variable displacement compressor, you can get better fuel mileage because you're not running it at full displacement. You can vary the, the, the output on the compressor, and as a result, you can, uh, 
you can run the evaporator a little bit warmer and get better fuel economy. And of course, there's a lot of pressure on the manufacturers to meet uh, CAFE standards these days. I've been amazed at how much just a, a tenth of a mile per gallon is worth to the car manufacturers. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's just incredible. Oh, yeah. And actually, weight is a big deal on that. And I know a lot, we're moving towards a lot more lightweight components. I assume the same is true in the, uh, on the HVAC side of the equation as it is everywhere else. Yeah, well, you know, when you take a look at compressors, the old A6 compressor, which uh, was, you know, the GM's compressor that they used for years and years, particularly in the 60s and 70s, they weighed around 35 pounds or so. If you drop one on your foot, you might be heading to the emergency room. You know, now we've got these lightweight aluminum compressors that are probably in the neighborhood of 15 pounds or less. A couple of the presentations I heard earlier today had uh, talked a lot about electric compressors. Is that something that, uh, that 1-800-RADIATOR and AC is also providing? Yes, we do uh, provide electric compressors. And that's, uh, again, commonly used on hybrids, I know. But the, do you have any, any feel towards the movement towards electrification? I know I've gotten several different answers on it. I figured I'd ask everybody about it. I'm hearing more and more that it is becoming more likely as battery technology advances and as the car manufacturers, again, are increasingly looking to improve their overall fleet economy. And again, we're hearing stories of uh, large, uh, you know, traditional manufacturers kind of laying off mechanical engineers and hiring electrical engineers. Any feeling from your segment of the aftermarket that we're moving towards electrification more quickly than you might have thought? Well, with what you hear about it, it, it seems to be that way, particularly in light of the presentation that was uh, was done this morning in the general session. You know, my focus is more on what the our shops, our customers are using right now. So I'm not, uh, you know, really involved in what may be happening in the future with regard to, you know, what the manufacturers are going to do with, you know, their changes and such. Mm-hmm. But what's your sense of it? What do you, what's your feeling on it? Do you think we're going to we're going to see electrical vehicle, more electric vehicles sooner than later? Well, it seems to be that way mm-hmm. with all, all the information that uh, you see coming across in the news. I mean, you know, time will tell. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of factors involved that, you know, could affect that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, knowing what type of compressor you're dealing with is critical to the diagnostic process. How can a technician be sure? What, what's the, uh, is it that something that you would typically find in the service information system? Is there a stamp on the compressor you look for? How do you identify these? Well, that's a great question. And that's something that has been very challenging. And we have worked very hard to make that a little bit easier. And we had some slides in the presentation about that very thing yesterday. From where we sit in tech support, a lot of times we know what type compressor we're dealing with just from repetition. Mm -hmm. But if you're working in a shop and you don't do all that much air conditioning work, uh, you know, you're not not going to have that knowledge. So the first thing that you'd want to try to do is take a look at the label on the compressor. It may have the model number on the compressor. Now, in the past, that wouldn't necessarily tell you anything, but in our uh, booklet that we put together for our clinic, we went through and identified as many model numbers as we possibly could and did some further research. And in our booklet, we lay it out whether it's a piston compressor, whether it's a scroll compressor, whether it's a vein compressor, and then whether it is variable or fixed in output, and then to go a step further, if it's a variable compressor, whether it's electronically controlled or if it's a uh, pressure control compressor. Mm-hmm. So, you, for example, if you happen to uh, be working on a Ford, 
and you saw on the label that if it's an FS10 compressor or an FS18 compressor, you'd go to the, you could go to this booklet and it would tell you that it's a fixed displacement piston compressor. Occasionally, you'll find that information in a service provider such as all that. I actually had a slide in the presentation yesterday that was just, it was just a screenshot on a Ford F-150, I believe, and right there in that information, it had FS18 compressor. Mm-hmm. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. Most of the time, you have to dig further. If you can't find the label on the compressor, then one thing that we, that a customer can do is call his local 1-800 warehouse and you know, tell him, I'm working on such and such a vehicle. I need to know what type of compressor I'm working on here. They'll put a ticket in to our AirTech group. We'll get that information and get it back to them. And they can send it to the customer, or they might even have us call the customer. Wow. So there's no visual cues from... Well, there actually are. I'm glad you asked that question. When it comes to the electronically controlled variable displacement compressors, it's very easy to determine one of those because they have a control valve. It's typically located on the back of the compressor, and it has a connector going to it that has a couple of wires coming to it from the computer that sends a pulse with modulated signal to it. Mm-hmm. With the regard to the pressure control variable displacement compressors, some of those, or actually most of them, such as the GM compressors, have a control valve that you can generally spot. But if it's a sand and compressor, it's got an internal pressure control valve that you can't see, so it's, that's more challenging. So the chassis can look identical between whether it's fixed or variable or whatever? Yeah. Wow. Well, okay, I can see where it would be a challenge. What are some of the impacts on the diagnostic process? Once you've identified whether I have a fixed or a variable, what's different about them when you're, when, that you should take into consideration when you're doing your diagnosis? Well, to give you an example, I'll use the, uh, the diagnostics discussion question that we had yesterday. Mm-hmm. What was going on with this one was it was a scenario where we had an expansion valve system with a pressure control variable displacement compressor, and it wasn't cooling very good. The ambient temperature was about 80 degrees. It was running about 110 on the high side, running about 30 on the low side, and the vent temperature was about 70 degrees or so. With a pressure reading on the low side around 30 pounds, it should have been cooling because if you look at a pressure temperature chart, a 30-pound low side will give you a cold evaporator, about 35 degrees or so. Mm. But it wasn't cooling. So the question that comes up is, well, how do I have a 30-pound low side and it's not cooling? And we laid out four different answers, and I, I don't really have the time here to, to detail all, all the different answers. But two of the answers were technician A says that the compressor is weak because it's only built on 110 pounds of pressure. Technician D says that it could either be a restricted expansion valve or a low refrigerant charge. Which one's correct? Well, the correct answer was D, either a restricted expansion valve or a, uh, a low charge. Now, <clears throat> with that 30 pounds pressure on the low side, here's what was going on. That compressor is designed to operate that system at about a 28 to 32 pound low side. So you start it up, it pulls the low side on down to about 28 to 32. When that happens, it throttles the compressor on back to a lower displacement to keep that low side in that range. In this case, it pulled it on down to that very fast because you either had a low refrigerant charge or restricted expansion valve. Let's use restricted expansion valve. Had a restricted expansion valve. So it pulled it on down to that range very fast and that's where it stayed. Now, if you were to just take that same car and change the compressor out on it and do nothing else, put a fixed displacement compressor on there in place of that variable displacement compressor, what likely would have happened is instead of that low side being around 28, 32 pounds, somewhere along in there, or 30 pounds as, as it was on this one, it would probably pull it on down into a vacuum. It would probably go down to around five PS, minus uh, five inches of mercury. Wow. 
And a lot of guys can identify that's like, ooh, I'm pulling a vacuum on the low side. I got a restriction. But you see, they, that's something that they wouldn't spot with a variable displacement compressor because the low side was about where it was supposed to be. It's like, why isn't it cooling? And the reason it wasn't cooling is because of a low liquid level in the evaporator. On a typical expansion valve system that's operating properly, the liquid level will probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80%. In this scenario here, it probably had about 10% or so. So it was very cold in the, in the bottom, around, th well, not extremely cold, but around 35 degrees or so. But because there's such a small amount of refrigerant flow, the refrigerant was becoming superheated, and by the time it made it out into the suction line, it had gone from 35 degrees to about 70 degrees. Wow. So that's a case there of where the difference in compressor behavior uh, indicates how one would operate with a variable displacement compressor versus a fixed displacement compressor with the same problem in the system. Well, there certainly is a lot to know these days, and it seems <laughs> to be getting more and more. Every instructor I've talked to today who has tried to boil down their presentation into one or two nuggets, you've done a great job, by the way, struggled with that because it's, well, it's not that simple, you know, is what I heard a lot. It's much more difficult than it used to yeah. be. Yeah, and uh, all the more reason why we need to keep on training. I think keeping up with technology is in and of itself a full-time job. And organizations like Max, the Mobile Air Conditioning Society, that provides this type of training to their members and really to the industry at large is becoming more and more critical, I think. Well, Richard, what you've shared today has been amazing. I know we're running short on time, and I'd like to go down a whole lot more on, uh, on some of the challenges that you face. But uh, just from what you shared, uh, obviously the need for having the correct information is more important than ever before to help identify what it is you're working on before you start that diagnostic process, right? Absolutely. You need to know what type of system you're dealing with, whether it's an orifice tube system or an expansion valve system. That's pretty easy to figure out. You need to know whether it's a constant run system or a cycling system. You need to know if it's pressure controlled or temperature controlled. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, you need to know what type of compressor you're dealing with. In order to get a correct diagnosis and not throw away a perfectly good compressor. There you go. Excellent. Well, Richard, I want to thank you. Well, we've been talking with Richard Hawkins at the AC team of 1-800-RADIATOR. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Can we count on you being here next year? I certainly hope so. Excellent. We'll look for you then. Richard, thanks. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Tony. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're brand new to the ASA podcast or if you've been here before, I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss some of the great things we have coming up in our future episodes. Just hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening and you'll be good to go. If you enjoy our podcast and find our content valuable, make sure to leave a rating and review wherever you are listening to this. And if you're an automotive service facility shop owner listening to this podcast and you'd like to know more about ASA, I invite you to visit our website at asashop.org. I'm Tony Mala, and thanks for listening.